0: I've lived in places where the winter is really cold. Personally, I can say I prefer to live here in Florida, where it's usually relatively warm. I don't miss shoveling snow or driving on roads that are icy, and it's been a long time since my fingers and toes felt numb from the cold temperatures. I know some people prefer a colder climate, and I'm fine with that. The world is more interesting because we're all different. But when you live in an area where there's cold weather and lots of snow, one of the things that makes it more bearable and even fun is to ride on a snowmobile. These things are a blast. For an avid snowmobiler, there's nothing better than a sunny day and a wide-open field of fresh snow. And my guest today, Andrew, definitely falls into that category. He's a huge fan of snowmobiles. He goes out riding every time he gets a chance, And he's one of those guys that sees a hill, and he knows that with enough speed, he can get his machine to go airborne. That's his thrill, and he's been doing it for years. But there was this one day, he went flying up a hill and caught air without realizing that there was someone on the other side of that hill. Someone on a snowmobile, coming toward Andrew, who also was about to fly through the air at the exact same time. And in that split second, while they were both in the air, Andrew realized that the other driver was someone he knew very well. Real people in unreal situations.
1: There is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. My friend has been
2: shot. I'm in the, literally inside the river, and I'm inside my car. He had
3: told me
1: multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire.
0: If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm going to kill you.
1: And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're going to be okay. And
2: I jumped on the hood of the car, and I held on.
1: And I looked into the garage, and he was hanging from
0: the rafters. I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Hey, it's Scott, and guess what? You're about to hear an ad, and that's both good and bad. It's good because ads are what make it possible for me to keep bringing you these episodes, and it's bad because, well, maybe you don't like listening to ads, and I get that. And the good news is, you don't have to. When you sign up to support the show, you get every single episode without any ads. Plus, you get all the bonus episodes. Yeah, did you know there are actually bonus episodes? And you can try it all for free just to see what it's like. If you're on an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast and at the top, click on Try Free and you're in. On Android, just go to whatwasthatlike.com and try it out completely free. Once you've had the ad-free experience, you'll see why hundreds of other listeners are already doing it. But for now, here's another ad, and then on with today's episode. What is meant by backcountry snowmobiling? What what exactly is that?
4: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, When I tell this story, most people don't really understand what that is. And so when most people think of snowmobiling, They think of these kind of lumbering machines loaded up with people driving down a icy road just kind of sightseeing. And that's not at all what we were doing that day. Uh, So so backcountry snowmobiling, first of all, the, the machine is very different. These machines are meant for deep snow. They are extremely powerful. They weigh about 500 pounds. They're meant for a single rider, about 165 horsepower. So their power to weight ratio is just insane. They're they're as fast as any sports car out there off the line. And they're actually not they're not even comfortable on roads. They're really just meant for deep backcountry snow. Two or three feet of snow is where they really excel.
0: I have a little bit of familiarity with snowmobiling. We lived in Maine for several years and my wife and I had a couple of snowmobiles, Polaris, and these were like when you were describing touring down the road looking at the looking at nature that's more what these were just big machines with two passenger not designed for performance more designed for comfort but it sounds like yours were kind of the opposite of this
4: yeah like i said they're they're meant for going up super steep hills really fast chewing through deep snow out in the back country with that much snow involved you're always getting stuck and so these have really long tracks it's called a lug on the track, but it's the little paddle that's attached to the the track of the snowmobile. And they're about three inches long, so they have a lot of dig, a lot of bite. I mean, they're fast. They'll go 80 miles an hour, no problem, up to 100 plus if you want to.
0: All right, well, let's talk about a little bit of setup. Where were you when this happened? How far away from civilization?
4: We've grown up. I kind of grew up really in the mountains. My dad was just avid into nature and Exploring, he's he loves motorsports. So we we've grown up in the Utah backcountry. The range is known as the Uinta Range. It's nor, northeastern Utah. A lot of people are familiar with Park City, a uh, famous ski area, and so we're maybe twenty miles east of Park City. And so we're in an area known as Wolf Creek Pass, which is about probably thirty miles beyond the closest town. So basically, we. We load the machines up into a trailer. We drive up as far as we can get before the snow's too deep, unload the machines, and then we basically just ride these little logging trails back into the mountains until, until we find a play area. And we go off trail and basically just get lost. And then when we're done, we try to find the trail again, get back home.
0: Where you were that day, do you know who actually owns that piece of land?
4: It's forest land. Um,
0: Oh, so it's all public.
4: It's all public land. Yeah. It, it's actually a pretty popular camping area in the summer. There are some trails back in there. We actually go back there a lot to camp, but it's all dirt roads. You know, this particular area, it's really nice. There's not like really steep mountains around. It's more hilly, a lot of big ridge lines. And then there's a lot of really nice field areas. And so a lot of trees, lots of fields. It's a perfect riding area in the winter time.
0: And who was with you that day?
4: Like I said, I kind of grew up snowmobiling. It's really a passion of mine. My father kind of raised my brother and I on snowmobiles. So it was, my dad was there that day and then my brother couldn't come for some reason. We had about four other just good friends with us, all very experienced riders. It was a just an awesome day as far as snowmobiling goes. And so we we're pretty selective on who we wanted to bring. We didn't want any beginners with us on that day.
0: And when you got to this place where you unloaded the snow machines, can you describe what what did it look like? Is I'm, I mean, I'm picturing like a a few football fields in size. Was it that big, or or what was the terrain like?
4: Basically, there's a parking lot, and they actually the Forest Service actually maintains a cat track, and so we parked right in this parking lot where they've plowed, and then the roads snowed over there's a there's a mountain pass that goes up and over and that's basically what we we use to ride back deep into the mountains so we unload the snowmobiles we get on this cat track and we ride for maybe 20 minutes at 60 miles an hour down this road and then you get into some of this deeper more thick terrain and that's where the logging roads start um, so we're you know we're a solid 45 minutes where where this actually happened we were probably a hour and a half away from our trailers, probably 45 minutes riding from this cat track graded road.
0: And what was the temperature like that day? What was the weather like?
4: As far as snowmobiling goes, a a snowmobiler's dream day is a big, huge storm the night before. And then you wake up to blue skies, cold. You want it cold temperatures so the snow stays really nice and powdery. Um, And that's basically what this day was. We had a huge storm the night before. It dumped two or three feet. We knew it was going to be awesome. Woke up early, loaded up the machines. And yeah, we got to the trailhead and it was just beautiful sky, blue sky. It was probably ideal temperatures is like 10 degrees. If it gets much warmer than that, the sun really starts to heat up the snow and you lose some of the powdery feeling in in the snow. And we usually get to the trailhead quite early, like just as the sun's coming up so that we can get first tracks out into the virgin snow.
0: Take us through that day. What happened? You, you guys got to this area and then, and and what happened?
4: As you can imagine, it was, like I said, just an epic, epic conditions. We were just all so excited, mile high. So we were just playing our way up this ridgeline. We'd taken a logging road pretty deep in there to this play area that we knew of that was, kind of hard to get to. We knew that there wouldn't be any people there. We we probably wouldn't see anyone all day. So, we, we rode up this ridge line and there's a shelf under this ridge and then it drops off again into this big valley. And we knew that on this shelf would probably be our best snow of the day. It's really protected from the wind so we knew that there'd be a lot of deep snow. So. We were up on this ridge, and we have to drop down. And with with that much snow falling, there's a lot of avalanche concerns. We're really careful. We come very prepared. And so, when you drop down these hills, you have to go one at a time, just in case there were to be some kind of an avalanche. Then everyone else can obviously come dig you up once you're down. And so it's a lot safer if you go one at a time. So my dad dropped in first, and I followed him. We got to the bottom, and I actually. Never asked what happened, but I think someone must have gotten stuck up above us. The rest of our group, because they just weren't coming down the hill. And my dad got greedy. I think he he uh, saw this virgin snow and uh, he just took off right into this field. And I sat there for another couple minutes waiting for the group. Didn't see him, and so I said, "Screw it! I'm gonna go play this field out and they can deal with no friends on powder days." Right is the saying. So this field. It's about maybe fifty yards wide, and then it it runs for a couple hundred yards, and it's totally wide open, just an absolute play area. And there's really, there, there's some little terrain features in there, but the main thing is just this little hill, maybe ten feet tall, fifty feet around, right in the middle of the field. And on snowmobiles in deep snow, it's really fun to hit these terrain features with some speed because you'll either get air or it'll push your skis up into the air and you kind of can hold a wheelie as long as you want. And it's a really fun feeling. You feel like you're flying. And so that was my idea. I'm like, oh, I'm going to go hit this hill and see if I can launch it. So anyways, I head straight for it and no sign of my dad, no idea where he went, crested this hill. And from that point, I have really three memories The first, I just remember seeing my dad right in front of me at the top of this hill. And he was already kind of in a wheelie position. So I saw his skis kind of right above my face. And then the next thing I remember, I was just flipping through the air, just spinning, spinning, seemed to last forever. And then the third, just memory I have is just laying in the snow on my back, uh, just staring at the sky, wondering what happened. Where's my dad? Am I okay? Pretty crazy situation.
0: So so you and your dad had this, the same idea of hitting this hill and going airborne, but the hill was high enough that you couldn't see each other and you were both coming toward each other.
4: Yeah, crazy. I mean, we we've been back to this hill many times, and I still have no idea how we didn't see each other. Just perfect angle, one in a million. And we both had the exact idea, same idea to crest the hill at the exact same place, just happened to do it at the exact same time in
5: opposite directions.
0: Here's Andrew's dad, Drew.
5: At the time of the impact, there was just this quick flash. And all of a sudden, there was this crunch. And then I just remember myself flying through the air And wondering what in the world just happened. And my first thought went to my son. And I thought, I think I just killed my son. And then I landed in the snow about 30 feet in front of the uh, accident. And I quickly got up. And the first thing I heard was just moaning. And I was so relieved to know that my son was alive. I quickly ran back and I just felt this adrenaline surge go into my body. And I went over and I was so happy to see Andrew lying on his back in the snow and conscious and able to communicate with me. I was so relieved. And as I looked around, there were just parts and pieces of snowmobile everywhere. It was almost like a bomb had gone off. And I looked over and the two snowmobiles were right on the top of the hill, the crest of the hill, and they had locked horns and they were just this big crumbled mass that were totally locked together. And I quickly realized that if it would have been a split second either direction, one of us could have gone right over the other or into the other at an impact speed of a probably close to 70 miles an hour and it would have meant instant death to uh, to one or even both of us so i just felt this immediate sense of gratitude that our lives had been spared and that my son was still conscious and able to communicate with me
0: and back to andrew
5: there's a couple miracles involved in this i call
4: them miracles involved in this story and the crash itself honestly it was a miracle the way it happened one of us no doubt should be dead if we were going maybe one or two mile an hour difference either faster or slower one of us i think one of the machines would have taken well his machine would have taken me right in the chest right in the head and yeah it'd be a very different story but basically his snowmobile kind of came down on top of mine and incredibly his front ski hooked into my handlebars and it just stopped the machines on a dime, completely stopped them dead. I was going at least 35 miles an hour and he was probably doing the same or faster. And these, you know, it's, these, they try to keep these machines really lightweight. It's just aluminum. So there's really, it's incredible that they locked horns the way they did and didn't blast over each other. It kind of launched him off sideways he really didn't get hurt at all he just flew off the side i think i remember kind of turning my body a little bit to the right and that makes sense with the injuries i received but i my my front hit my left hip hit his front bumper and the whole bumper was actually completely crushed in so i think that was my my leg or or hip hitting him and then yeah i just flipped through the air several times and then Landed there totally confused.
0: Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing, two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels, and thankfully that's all backed up by science, and all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan because it's that too. And if you have kids, dso one is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try.
1: Trust your gut with Seeds DS01 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25 what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of seeds DSO1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what code 25 what.
0: I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Or go wild and have CookUnity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing.
1: Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of CookUnity.
5: Go to cookunity.com what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com what.
4: I laid there for a second. It didn't enter my mind. Like, is did I? Is my dad dead? Is he okay? What happened to him? I was completely winded. You know, I sounded like a dying animal, I'm sure. I was trying to get my air back. And my dad came running over and it was great to see his face. He was super concerned, obviously. Right about then, the whole group showed up. I heard the machines and they pulled up. I looked around and there's just pieces of snowmobile all over the ground. It looked like a bomb had gone up just stuff everywhere. They kind of just left me there. Obviously, they were taking care of me and talking to me, but I just laid there for a few minutes and kind of got my breath back and I was hurting, but you know, I seemed seemed like I was okay. So they said, "All right, well, should we try to get you up and we'll figure out what to do?" And so they one of them tried to tried to kind of grab my arm and tried to help me stand up and and then that's when it just hit me. I felt like my whole body was on fire. I thought my leg had fallen off. I mean, it, it was so painful right then when I tried to move as the shock of the accident was was wearing off. And so, that's kind of when we, we thought, okay, this, this is a lot more serious than we initially thought. We need to figure something out here quickly.
0: I would assume that you were wearing a lot of layers and they couldn't necessarily see. It wasn't clearly obvious that you had any broken bones or anything.
4: Yeah, exactly. Kind of no idea what's going on. These cold days, you know, it's when you're riding, you get wind chill way below zero. So we're fully suited up, lots of layers, you know, helmets, protection, the whole nine yards. So yeah, I mean, I kind of got my coat off. I knew my upper body was relatively okay. I think I had a broken rib, but I was moving my back all right, my neck. But yeah, my my lower half was, was messed up and I could feel my leg. And it, it felt big. I, I I knew there was immediate swelling that we were concerned about, but they tried to pull my boot off and just absolute agony. So they just left everything in. A little worried about my back, so they didn't want to move me too much. Yeah, I had a lot of pain in my lower back. Well, more my pelvis region, but very lower back. So they were concerned about that. I wanted to be careful.
0: Now, you were so far away from everything. Did you even have cell service to make a phone call?
4: No, nothing like that. I mean, yeah, we're thirty miles from the closest town plus, and that town really doesn't have much cell service. So that was definitely kind of the first thing we thought about. Okay, what do we how do we deal with this? And I, I mentioned kind of some, some miracles involved in this story, and this is where the next one comes into play. You know, we we take this pretty seriously. We've been writing long enough to see accidents and be involved in avalanches, crazy weather. So there's some gear that we all bring. The most important piece being an avalanche beacon. It's basically a a small passive radio that sits in your chest pocket. And when you start riding, you turn those on, which is always transmitting a beacon uh, signal. And then the rest of the group all has these transmitters. And so, the idea is that if someone gets trapped in an avalanche, the rest of the group can then turn their transmitters on to search mode, which will allow them to pinpoint the body buried under the snow. And they're really accurate. I mean, you can find a body within a foot radius of where it tells you to go. And then you pull out what's called a probe, which is just a long stick, basically. that like It's like a tent pole that folds up into a little pouch. So, you unfold that and you can poke down into the snow and find the body find the person and then we all have shovels uh, as well for digging and then we always make sure at least someone in the group carries a GPS with them and then we all have radios as well so we can communicate talk to each other and then if there is a problem we have some some means of locating what's interesting about these avalanche beacons it's the most important thing to carry back there but cell service actually interferes with the beacon So, when you're wearing those, you have to turn your phones off or you may not be found if you get stuck in an avalanche. So, we always turn our phones off when we get out of the trailer and load up our sleds. So, miraculously, for some reason, my dad had not turned his phone off that day. He remembers cresting a few hills before the accident and he heard a text go through his phone. He heard it ding in his chest pocket. Honestly, that may have saved my life because he knew exactly where he needed to go to get cell service and just just barely enough to to get a call out to 911. And then luckily, we had a group member with the GPS. He had our exact coordinates. And so really within about 20, 30 minutes of the crash, we had a call out to 911 and they had
0: search and rescue on their way. How long did it take for the emergency responders to get to you?
4: It was about an hour and a half from the actual accident, which considering the how deep we were back there and how remote and the snow conditions that day, it was really a miracle. Um Utah has a pretty robust search and rescue system. A lot of the guys on search and rescue are avid snowmobilers, and so at any given point on big snow days, there's almost always search and rescue back in there backcountry. But obviously, it takes them some time to get on their radios and get the call. So, Search and Rescue actually found us. Some snowmobilers found us a, almost the exact same time the helicopter found us. And luckily, we, we had this big field where the helicopter could land. As soon as they showed up, I had a crew of about 10, 10 people on me trying to you know, assess my condition and help me get comfortable.
0: But you were laying in the snow for 90 minutes. Yeah. I mean, that... Aside from your injuries, that's got to be just miserable.
4: Yeah, exactly. You know, about 30 minutes into the accident, that's when I really started getting uncomfortable. I knew I was hurting pretty bad. I knew my leg was messed up, my hip, my, my butt, possibly my back. And then, yeah, just laying in the snow for that long, you start to tense up and shiver. And I could tell I was losing blood somehow, which was internal, luckily. But yeah, it was, I was getting really cold. In fact, search and rescue got to me and they couldn't find a vein. I was all constricted and so I couldn't get any kind of pain medicine.
0: Being in the snow, they had to get you on a backboard. Did you lose consciousness at all from the pain?
4: No, I was I was conscious the whole time. I mean, the pain was mostly manageable except when they tried to move me, obviously,
0: it was extremely
4: painful. But they did get me onto the backboard and then What's so interesting, the the helicopter landed about 100 feet away from the crash site, but as you can imagine, three feet of fresh snow, it's almost impossible to move in. And so, they actually kind of draped the backboard over a snowmobile and then very slowly drove the snowmobile through the snow with everyone trying to keep up behind post-holing. So, I wish we had video of that. It would have been kind of comical <laughs> to watch.
0: Your, your last ride for that day. Yeah, right? exactly.
4: <laughs> but I always joke I've always, I've actually never been heli skiing and I've always wanted to go heli skiing. And uh, so, this was my first heli skiing experience.
0: <laughs> what is that? I'm not familiar with that term.
4: Heli skiing is where they basically pick you up in a helicopter and then drop you off on the top of the mountain and let you ski down. Always been a dream of mine. And So I think this was actually my first helicopter ride, so not quite the conditions I hoped it to be, but um, I was sure grateful for the helicopter that day. (laughs) Helicopter ride took about 30 minutes. They unloaded me at the hospital, got a bunch of painkiller into me, and uh, then I was right into surgery a couple hours after that. So I ended up breaking my femur pretty severely, broke my hip, my pelvis, lost about... Well, the surgeon said he estimated about 30% of my body's blood into my leg internally. And then they didn't find it on the x-ray, but I'm pretty sure I broke a rib too because it was it was pretty bad. It hurt pretty bad.
0: I've heard that a femur break is the most painful break you can have. You know, it's the long bone in your in your thigh. Would you agree with that? Or how how would you rate that pain? Yeah,
4: it's it uh it sucked. I've broken a lot of bones, actually. I've broken about 10 bones in my life. So I'm no stranger to the the bone pain and healing process with that. And it was definitely the most painful. It It's the strongest bone in the body, the biggest bone in the body. And it takes a lot of force to break that bone. So yeah, it was it was painful. What's crazy about your leg, the muscles and tendons in your leg are so strong that when the femur breaks... A lot of the pain actually comes from your muscles and tendons pulling the two pieces of bone into each other. Your tendons have so much tension on them in, that, in your thigh that it will literally crush the, the two bones into each other. And that's where a lot of the pain comes from.
0: In the meantime, your dad had called your wife to meet you at the hospital. Again, Andrew's dad.
5: So I knew I needed to call Andrew's wife, Elizabeth. And again, this was something that I was uh, not excited about to tell her the news. Uh, they were had not been married too long. And, and so, I knew that this would be a, a really traumatic thing for her. And the minute I made it to the parking lot where we had left from before the accident, I got on the phone and explained what had happened. And she was amazingly calm. Elizabeth his wife is just a rock star and she took the news very well and she had headed straight to the hospital to be there in fact she was the first part one of member of the family to arrive at the hospital
0: I also asked Elizabeth about getting that phone call
3: I felt like I was pretty calm through most of it but I do think I was in a little more shock than I realized at the time when I got the phone call I was actually with my mom we were at my brother's soccer game and so I was like I've got to go to the hospital and she was like no no I can tell you're in shock like I will drive you so we drove down there and I remember feeling like it was kind of all a dream or like I was in a movie because when I walked into the hospital we went in through the ER and I you know said you know my husband was just life lighted in and I explained the situation and they were like, okay. And they like went over the intercom and they're like, trauma two's wife is on her way. Trauma two's wife. And I was like, trauma two, like, this is real. Like this is really happening. Um, but when I got there, I was like, not completely at ease, but put at ease because he was the first thing he talked about was his snow pants and how concerned he was about his snow pants. And I was like, you're going to be fine. I'm just glad you're alive. We'll get you new snow pants. Like it will all be okay. (laughs)
4: My wife showed up at the hospital. I was in a uh, trauma bay. They had just loaded me full of dilated. I was a pretty happy kid at that point. She comes walking in stressed out, of course, and I think the first thing I said to her was, They cut off my snow pants. I was pretty distraught about my snow pants.
0: <laughs> What's the deal with those snow pants? Why was that so important?
4: Oh, I had I had, you know, spent a month trying to find an awesome pair of snow pants, I'd been through I actually ripped a couple pairs of new snow pants that year skiing and uh, I had just found an awesome pair that fit me perfectly. Search and Rescue actually wanted to cut my snow pants off when they found me in that field and I insisted that they would not cut my snow pants off <laughs> and I didn't let them. And then first thing, get to the hospital and they cut them right off and uh, for some reason that was a big hang up <laughs> in my, my my drugged brain. <laughs>
0: Priorities become different when you're high on painkillers.
4: Exactly. But no, she was, my wife was very concerned, but just grateful I was there and alive and hopefully stable.
0: So you went into surgery and everything I've heard is that femur surgery is pretty violent. What, What exactly happens during that surgery?
4: My profession, I'm in real estate and construction. So I'm used to drills and hammers and we build we build custom homes. During my recovery, I had a lot of just boredom time sitting around, and so I thought I should pull up some of these surgeries and see what they actually did to me. And uh, basically, just looked like another day on the job site. They they literally pull out the, a big screw and they they ream out the inside of your femur. They stuff a, a rod. Well, they stuff a like a small nail through your femur that acts as a sleeve, and then they they with a hammer they sleeve this rod down through the the middle of your femur and they actually hammer it into your femur so i have a a foot and a half long titanium rod in my leg right now but yeah i mean it's they use screws drills saws hammers it's pretty involved surgery
0: not something you want to be awake for no that's for sure no way part of the motivation you had for recovery was an upcoming trip what was that what was the plan there
4: a little background on my phase of life during at this time. This was March of 2015. I had just gotten married that year. So, I'd been married less than a year. It was I was finishing up my senior year at the University of Utah. So, it was right before I was supposed to graduate, trying to wrap up all my classes. And then as kind of a graduation present to ourselves, my wife and I had booked a two-month trip to Southeast Asia. We wanted to go backpack through a bunch of these countries in Southeast Asia. And so, I think that was my first question to my surgeon. I, I still really wanted to go on this trip. I said, you know, can I go? And he said, no way, absolutely not. But we went. <laughs> we really wanted to go. And it was, we we had this trip booked two months after my accident. So, I had a lot of recovering to do to be in a position where I could actually go backpack through Southeast Southeast Asia. These guys, the hospital had me up on crutches two days after the surgery. They, They want you to move. They want you to recover your blood and recover your muscle mass. And so they really encourage movement immediately after the surgery, which, you know, pretty painful trying to move. And with that much blood loss, very hard to just even want to get out of bed, but I think this trip really helped motivate me to do that. I really tried to move as much as possible, but it, it was—I mean—it was a challenge. I was laid up in bed for the first few weeks, really no movement or very minimal movement. I was as helpless as it gets. I mean, I—I I, uh, it, t- it would take about thirty minutes to get me out of bed, into the bathroom, back into bed. And I needed two people to help me do that, at least for the first couple of weeks. So, pretty challenging.
0: Was that in the hospital? Or how long were you in the hospital?
4: Yeah, I, they actually had me out of the hospital pretty quick. It was, obviously, they checked me out and wanted to watch me and make sure I was recovering correctly and that there weren't going to be complications with the surgery. But I was out of there within a few days after the surgery. I Obviously, I couldn't do stairs. I had trouble doing much of anything. So... My parents uh, were nice enough to put us up in their home. They have main floor living, and they let me sleep in their bed, actually. So we kind of just moved into my parents' home. and My wife was in school, so she couldn't be there all day. So she, she and my mom just kind of took turns taking care of me.
0: That's nice to have that support system in place right out of the gate.
4: Yeah, I was really blessed in that way. It was nice to have a lot of help when I needed it.
0: What were some of the difficulties you found in just day-to-day stuff?
4: It, emotionally, it was pretty hard. I'm not much of a movie person. I never watch TV. So, just just sitting there all day was really depressing for me. I read a lot of books, but other than that, it was pretty boring and that was hard. Using the bathroom was a challenge. Like I said, it took three three people to kind of help me do my business. I remember The first time I had to sit, I actually, I got in there. My mom was on one arm. My wife was on the other. They got me sitting on the toilet and did my business. And then I had this horrible realization that there was no way I was going to be able to wipe my butt. And uh, I had to choose either my brand new wife of less than a year or my mother. And that was a hard choice.
0: can you describe the physical part of it? What was—I di- I mean, your arms weren't broken or immobile. What was difficult about doing that? What made it impossible?
4: Just the stiffness in my body and just the the pain in trying to flex any muscle, move anything down there. You know, my 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 pelvis was all messed up, my hip was all messed up. So trying to twist your back enough to be able to physically <laughs> wipe the butt was just impossible. <laughs> but um. Chose my wife, and uh we're still married, so things worked out, I guess.
0: <laughs> now, you know, I had to ask Andrew's wife, Elizabeth, what she thought of that decision-making process.
3: <laughs> I was the one that said that, because I was like, here, let me come help you, and he was like, Absolutely not. <laughs> it's like, well, it's either me or your mother. So, which which is the better choice?
0: <laughs> and I wondered how do you prepare yourself mentally to do a job like that?
3: I I mean, I would like to say I'm a mentally tough person. I feel like I mean, we had just barely been married not even quite a year yet. Um, And so I understood why he (laughs) obviously didn't want me doing that. And like, at the time I was like, I'm like supposed to be your caretaker though. Like, obviously I should be the one to to help you with that. And now looking back, I'm like, if it was opposite situation and it was me that needed that help, I would have absolutely (laughs) refused as well. I mean, I grew up babysitting a lot. So I, changed a lot of bums i was a special ed teacher so i even changed some older people so <laughs> i was ready for it i was ready for the challenge
4: <laughs> oh bless her heart i swore to myself no matter how painful it was that was the first and last time that would ever happen
0: <laughs> well good for her man did you have any withdrawal issues once the pain meds were stopped
4: yeah, I was taking pain meds, heavy narcotic dose every three hours. I'd wake up every three hours in, in the night and uh that was I hated that, man. It was that was hard. I'd wake up every night with the bed completely soaking wet. And I don't know if that was just part of the recovery or something to do with the pain medicine. I had sleep apnea. My wife said she'd wake up and I'd be I'd be not breathing or doing weird things. She said one night I woke up. She woke up and I had my arms straight up in the air, totally asleep. Just weird stuff with that with that much pain medicine. And then, yeah, getting off of it was, was hard. I wanted off of it as fast as I could because I actually was like mega constipated from the heavy doses and nothing seemed to help. So, I got off of it pretty quick but went through the full withdrawals and uh, yeah, I had about a week of just crazy withdrawal symptoms
0: on top of all the other recovery issues, feels like a recovering addict to some degree. But yeah, I mean, a lot of people, <laughs> yeah. that's their concern because so many people get addicted to that and you really don't know until you're until you're on it if you're one of those people or not.
4: Yeah. I love I love the feeling of pain medicines. I mean, it feels so good when you're in pain, but the side effects are a major deterrent for, at least for me, I, I can't handle the side effects of them.
0: So you went on the backpacking trip. Did you have any trouble during that time?
4: You know, I honestly think it was the best thing for me. Obviously we were my family was very nervous about it. My mom had no desire to see us go on this trip. She'd been taking care of me and knew my condition. So yeah, we went. I at that point I was on a cane. I didn't have much of a, a gate to my walk. I was struggling to walk, but I had a cane and packed up a backpack and we took off. And basically we hiked every single day for two months through these little towns and cities and You know, within about a month, I was able to ditch my cane. I had my normal gait back. And uh, even though it was highly unrecommended, I think it was great for us. We had one, I guess, scary incident there. We actually got into a motorcycle crash in the highlands of Vietnam.
0: Don't tell me you were trying to jump a hill or anything, right?
4: (laughs) (laughs) We were playing chicken with another motorbiker. (laughs) No, he came around a blind corner and a semi had, was coming head on and basically just had to dump the bike and rode the road with my arms a little bit. But, well, really bless my poor mom for putting up with <laughs> those pictures. She didn't like those pictures very much. <laughs> she said, come home.
0: Speaking of your mom, I've, I wanted to mention this. You had talked about kind of a little prank that you pulled on her. What was that?
4: <laughs> yeah, so I had, you know, basically just hours at home. My mom was so great the whole time she about as good of a caretaker as I could have asked for, just brought me food, helped me with anything I needed when my wife was at school or at work. but obviously, you get kind of bored and your mind wanders and so I of course thought I should probably pull some kind of a prank on her. Her biggest fear was that i you know I'd be walking around on my crutches and and something would happen I'd slip, and then she wouldn't be able to get me up or help me back into bed and so I thought we should play that into my advantage. We, my wife was in on this. And so, I walked into the bathroom one day. And I. at this point, I had enough mobility to shut the door and actually sit down on the floor with my back against the door. And so, I sat there and then I threw my crutches across the bathroom and it hit the wall, made this big noise and I started screaming. And I think my mom had a heart attack. I mean, she... <laughs> she started screaming and freaking out, had her phone out, ready to call. And she kept trying to open the door. But since I was leaning against it, she couldn't get in there. It was just her absolute worst nightmare. <laughs> we had a pretty good laugh about that one.
0: <laughs> I would imagine that since she's known you your whole life, that little prank was probably not a huge surprise. <laughs>
4: <laughs> no, it wasn't out of the ordinary, but definitely kind of a cruel prank to to play on her. <laughs>
0: well breaks breaks the boredom anyway, yeah exactly. you've mentioned that your dad felt guilty or somehow responsible for the crash why Why do you think he felt that way maybe because you got injured and he wasn't injured or or what do you think the thought process was there?
4: yeah, uh, the emotions of the crash is a pretty interesting aspect, you know when you're in some kind of traumatic experience like that your your brain you want to find fault somewhere, you know, who's, who's at fault? Who's the guilty party? Could this have been avoided this particular accident? It was, it was kind of hard because, you know, my dad kind of escaped unscathed. And so I had a couple nights where I just felt like, Oh, it's so unfair. Why was he where he was? Why, why did he think he should hit that hill when he did, you know, and I kind of struggled with that a little bit. But, you know, at the end of the day, we we were both doing something totally ordinary. We weren't taking really any risks beyond what we normally take. Very controlled situation. And it just was a one in a million accident, the way it happened. So, you know, I went through the whole spectrum of emotions from anger, frustration. I'm sure he felt an immense amount of guilt because he, you know, he basically was uninjured. And then seeing... His son laying there in the snow—I'm sure was just heartbreaking for him. I since the accident, I've had two kids, and I can't even imagine the emotions I would feel if I was in this situation as my father. You know, so I'm dealing with all this kind of frustration, anger, depression, a little bit, trying to get through this. But at the same time, I have this just immense gratitude that the accident happened the way it did, and that we're both alive, and that you know I didn't kill my father or vice versa. So yeah pretty emotional roller coaster, but you know
0: I'm thinking about it like as you have all these hours days on end to think about what happened, if you had it to do over again, you probably would have chosen the same way. You wouldn't want to have him be the one injured. You'd probably rather be the one that got injured anyway.
4: oh, a hundred percent, you know my dad, I'd hate to see him in my position. I can't imagine the feelings I would have had if i if I was in his shoes, you know.
0: I asked Andrew's dad about his feelings of being in any way responsible for the accident.
5: From my end, uh, the responsibility uh, was confusing. I uh, was on the other end of this large meadow, probably almost a football-filled in length away from Andrew when I last saw him, and he was just sitting still on his on his snowmobile. And others in our party were gathering up with him, and he was actually even pointed in the other direction. And so I thought, I better just go join up with this group. And I had no idea that he could have gone from the place I saw him last to the crest, the blind crest of this hill, so quickly. And so it was, again, one of these things when we collided. One of my biggest emotions was just shock and confusion as to how he could have been gone from one place to another so quickly without me realizing it. We're always so careful in everything that we do in the backcountry and try to be prepared and try to use good judgment. And uh, like Andrew has indicated, this was just a one in a million chance that the two of us could have crested the hill at the same time The same place, exactly, because there were no snowmobile tracks to follow. This was just wide open, fresh snow. So as far as the responsibility, you know, as I review this, I do not know what I could have done differently to avoid the accident. But at the same time, you know, any parent knows that anytime anything happens to one of their children, they take it very, very hard no matter what control they have over the situation or not.
0: And overall, Andrew is still happy with the way things turned out.
5: I mean, if I were to do this over
4: again, 100%, I'd, I'd take the blow and, you know, I'm here today. I'm alive. I It all worked out. So really, really grateful it worked out the way it did.
0: And you kept a souvenir of the crash.
4: <laughs> yeah. So this is pretty crazy. Somehow in that, crazy forces involved in that accident it blew the whole computer off of my snowmobile and so the the computer that controls the well that controls the speed and the rpms actually have the dashboard intact and i have it hanging on my office wall i look at it every day and it actually the needle is frozen at the speed that we were going when the accident happened i'm looking at it right now i was going 35 miles per hour and the RPMs were pinned at 6,000 RPMs. That's a good reminder that, you know, life changes fast and you never really know what what's going to happen.
0: And if you want to see a picture of Andrew's speedometer that he was talking about, we'll have that on the website page for this episode at whatwasthatlike.com slash 92. Last episode was the special one with all the childbirth stories you haven't heard that one, go check it out. Lots of great stories in there. Ramona heard that episode and was reminded that she and her mom have something in common.
1: Hi, Scott. Love your show. Just thought I would share something kind of fun after your um, stories about moms and giving birth. My mother had me on her birthday, same hour, same minute. We were off by an ounce or an inch. I don't know that detail, and she used to always tell the story because it ended up in the paper, and in the paper it said something about the baptism. But she said this, the article was headed, history repeats itself, but it didn't say that, but that was cute. She thought that. So I was named after her, first name, middle name, and my first name is Ramona and my mom was named after the song Ramona in 1928. So I just thought it was kind of a cool story and everybody that hears it thinks it's pretty amazing.
0: And now here's something pretty cool about a previous episode. Episode 83 was called, Shireen was rammed by her own car. And it went live a few months ago on July 16, 2021. The guest was Shireen and she was pregnant and stuck in this relationship with her abusive boyfriend and a co-worker helped her get away. Well it ended up that the two of them were trying to get away and it turned into this car chase where he was chasing them and trying to crash into them. Really scary. I had tried to get the 911 audio from that day and it didn't get to me in time to include it in the episode but I did just get it recently. So I'm gonna play you a couple of calls. The first one is just someone who saw what was going on and he wanted to get the police there to stop the attack. The second call is after Shireen and her friend had finally gotten away from him and they went straight to the police substation and needed to have an officer come and take their statements. So here are those two calls
1: San Antonio 911, this is Denise. Do you need
6: police? Ma'am, fire, or ma'am, 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 ma'am. Five minutes ago. Two dudes trying to run this girl off the road, into the uh, on cinnamon creek, into the riverstone apartment. Okay. I've been trying to sit there and contact you for the last five minutes to let you know. The woman turns around.
3: All right, she's in a
6: like goldish color little small car. All right, the, the one of the dudes, the bad guy, he's in a black small car. And the other one's in a white truck, and they're chasing these deer. It's a woman out I don't know if it's a little girl with her, or if it's another woman in the passenger the seat. They, 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 they turned around on Cinnamon Creek. The girls, the, the females, are trying to get away from these two dudes, and they're trying to run the, this car off the street. I don't know where they went, but they they were heading down Cinnamon Creek toward the shelf there, and so she spun around. All right. It came Back up toward um whatever that is uh that Fertig- runs across Cinnamon Creek. Fertig- I just called um Road? ma'am. Fredericksburg Road. No, no, not for Cinnamon Creek. Fredericksburg Road runs parallel with Cinnamon Creek. All right. I think that's they one meet spot. At the no, no, no. no by USA. My bad. She spun around and went toward Hamilton Wolf. Okay. And they chased her that away. Okay. It's a white truck. And a small black car, a dark color car, might be a, like a, a midnight blue or something like that, real dark. And they're chasing this these two females, and it's a small like goldish color car. But yeah, I mean, uh, people had to stop before you no, know, they you no know, ended up getting how can I, a head-on collision with these two dudes, ones in a white truck and ones in a like a dark small car they okay. so like one of them um what a what kind of you like um you know them old Nissan? Yes sir. It's just something like that, or maybe an old um Corolla or something but like a small car like that. And like I said, the one of the guys in a white truck and one of them's in a the, um uh, small dark car, and they try to run these two females off the road right there in front of the Riverstone apartments.
1: And the um,
6: ASIO apartments right there on that curve.
1: All right. All right, we'll get someone out there, okay?
6: All right, I don't know where they went because I was further back when it was happening. I spun around and they shot out toward Hamilton Wolf, all three of them, because she was trying to get away from them. But so you might want to just check it out. I don't know because um if something that made no sense. I mean, they almost, the, the two dudes almost caused a major wreck on Cinnamon Creek because. Everybody had to stop so they wouldn't sit there and collide with
1: these people. Okay, I will get someone out there. I greatly appreciate it. All right, thank you. Thank you, sir. Bye. Hello. This is San Antonio Police, ma'am. Are you okay? We're at the we're at the um substation you? on Peru. We're at the substation on Peru. Okay. Okay. I approve substation. Okay. If you could send somebody, I don't know if there's officers Yeah, no, no, they're they're on the way. They're on the way. Okay. Thank you, ma'am. Are you okay? You don't need an ambulance or anything? We don't need an ambulance. My car is, like, pretty much totaled. Okay. All right, but you're at the substation, so you're safe. All right, thank you so much, ma'am. You take care of yourself. Okay. Okay, bye-bye.
0: Again, that episode is Shireen was rammed by her own car, and it's episode number 83, And just before this week's listener story, I want to invite you to join a bunch of other listeners and be a supporter of the podcast. Your support is what keeps this thing going. And for just $5 a month, you get all the new episodes ad-free, and you get the bonus exclusive 911 episodes. And you know, I've never actually mentioned this, but you also get a custom, personalized audio message from me, just for you, thanking you for being a patron of the show you can get all the details and sign up at whatwasthatlike.com slash support. And now this week's listener story about the sad cruelty that happens in high school. Stay safe and I'll see you in two weeks.
2: I am, I'm, I'm choosing to keep myself anonymous, but this is for a story for kids or teenagers who struggle in high school and uh, who just struggle just as much as me. So when I started off high school, my father just passed away my first day of high school. And I was really beat up. I was obviously sad and I was really mad. And it was at like 3.50 in the morning, so I still had to school that day. So I decided I was going to go to school. Maybe I might be able to get my mind off it, talk to some friends, hopefully, you know, not think about it. So heading into class, my biology class, and I go to, you know, talk to my friends. So, you know, I asked them, like, hey, like, you know, let's hang out. And the room goes completely quiet, and everybody starts looking at me. And I'm like, hmm. I'm like, I didn't think nothing of it, you know. And obviously, you know, I was already struggling, so I didn't really like the attention on me. So I was like, oh, that's weird. So then, you know, I asked them one more time. I was like, hey, I was like, you guys want to like maybe like hang out this weekend, you know, just do something fun. And you know, uh, one of them say, hey, I'm not gonna hang out with no little bitch who's, you know. Complaining about his dead dad, uh, my heart instantly sunk. I'm gonna be honest; I, I was broken, you know, because I, I thought those were my friends. So, you know, everybody looks at me, and the room goes dead silent. I sit there in silence with my anxiety and stress, and I was I was really broken. So I leave the classroom, and I instantly start bawling. Crying. I start crying and bawling and. Then you hear the classroom kind of all, like, it just becomes loud and everybody just starts talking and stuff. So I decided I wasn't going to show up that period, head to the nurse's uh, nurses office and pretend I was sick. So I'd go to the nurse's office, pretend I was sick, and then i head off the rest of my day. Hopefully I'd forget about it and just, you know, obviously they weren't friends. So I sat at a table and I was all alone. I was just sitting there. I had my hoodie on. And I was just like, you know what? Maybe I just, I don't want to be
5: bothered today.
2: And I didn't want to miss class. So I sit there and then you just hear all the freshmen talking about me, talking about my dead dad, talking about how I'm a pussy and stuff, or, you know, being sad over my dead dad and how their life was much harder. And I was, I was broken. I mean, I already had bi- severe bipolar at that time. So, you know, it didn't make anything any better. And I struggled every day you know, waking up, wanting to go to the same school, seeing the same people, hearing the same things. And it, it hurt me. It really did. I'm 18 now. I just graduated and I've never been any better and happier in my life now that I'm done with high school.